Today's scripture reading is Genesis 16, 5-13. Then Sarai said to Abram, It's all your fault that I'm suffering like this. I put my slave in your arms. Now that she knows she's pregnant, she looks down on me. May the Lord judge between you and me. May he decide which of us is right. Your slave belongs to you, Abram said. Do with her what you think is best. Then Sarai treated Hagar badly, so Hagar ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring of water in the desert. The spring was beside the road to Shur. The angel said, Hagar, you are Sarai's slave. Where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my owner Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to the woman who owns you. Obey her. The angel continued, I will give you and your family many children. There will be more of them anyone can count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, because he will because the Lord has heard about your suffering. He will be like a wild donkey. He will use his power against everyone, and everyone will be against him. He will not get along with any of his family. She gave a name to the Lord who spoke to her. She called him, You are the God who sees me. That's because she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is the, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Owen, so much for that reading of God's Word. Um, church, good, good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Reed. I serve as the campus pastor here, and um, it is a joy to uh, be in this season of Advent uh, as we are continuing on in the series that we're calling He Shall Be Called, exploring the, the names of God and how these names contr- uh, contribute and speak to the character of God and how they find their culmination in the Christmas story. And so what I'd like to do is we, as we turn to our text this morning, I actually want to pray. And if you were with us last week, I, I shared this um, that, at that time as well. If you haven't grabbed uh, one of our uh, Formed Life companion journals that goes along with the series, um, there is a prayer um, around each of these names that we pray together on Sundays. And so what I wanted to do is to, to begin our time as we continue in worship uh, to pray this prayer um, over us. And so let's take a moment uh, to pray. Father in heaven, sometimes it feels like no one understands the struggles we go through. Even when we are surrounded by people, we may still feel alone and invisible. Yet we take heart in the truth that you are the God who sees. Whether we are tempted to boast in our own accomplishments or to despair at our circumstances, by your Spirit, may we be reminded that we are known by you. When we do not receive acknowledgement, recognition, or companionship from others, may we find our hope and satisfaction in the truth that we do not go unseen by you. And as we come to you, united with Jesus and in his name, we find comfort in the truth that we are seen and known by you, the God who sees. We pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, some of you, uh, some of you may know this about me, some of you may not, but for the first seven years of my time on staff at Christ Community, I had the joy of being uh, the high school pastor at our Leewood campus. And so uh, many fond memories of that time, not the least of which was being mistaken for a high schooler on almost every trip that we went on that I was in charge of. But one of my favorite events that we would host every year was a game that we called the Blue Ganoo. 
And the Blue Ganu is actually created by a member of the Olathe campus, Andy Garlick. And, and this game, the way it worked is we would have um, adult leaders who would dress in disguise and hide throughout uh, the Oak Park Mall. And, and, and students would come around, and so this is, this is Andy, uh, dressed in disguise for one of the early Blue Ganus, okay? And so the leaders would be stashed around the, uh, the mall. Groups of students would have to walk around in search of these leaders in disguise and go up to them and say, are you the Blue Ganu? Risking potentially saying a very strange sentence to a total stranger and being incredibly embarrassed. And so one year, I dressed up in disguise and I was never found by the students. It was, it was such a wonderful day. And the reason why, I, I mean, like students came up to me, they would look at me and walk right past me. And the reason why I was overlooked is because I was dressed up as a perfectly disguised Panera employee. And I went to Panera, so there I am, that's, that's me. Uh, that is a fake beard, just so you know. Uh, and so I went to the Panera manager, asked them for a t-shirt. Uh, they gave me an apron, or an apron and a name tag, and they just let me wipe down tables. And I had students walk right up to me and look me in the eyes and then just walk right away. And I was, I was so, it was like the proudest moment of my entire life as a youth pastor. And in fact, one kid walked up, looked at me, walked past me, went back to his group and said, guys, it's not him. It's not him. And I, oh, I was just, I was so proud in that moment. Now, now this game, as, as fun as it was, uh, it was, it was victorious and successful when I was unseen, when I was overlooked, when you are not seen in the Blue Ganu you are a winner. But, but as we think about our lives, as we think about our desires of our hearts, the exact opposite is true when it comes to life. Being overlooked, being unseen, feeling invisible is deeply painful. It, it's a lonely feeling. And so while it's good to be overlooked and unseen in the Blue Ganu, it is deeply painful to be unseen, overlooked, and invisible in life. We all know this to be true in various ways, and it's why this morning as we continue on in Advent through our series, He Shall Be Called, I want us to look at and see this particular name of God, El Roy in Hebrew, which means the God who sees. Because for many of us, as we journey on through this Advent season and in this time of Christmas, even though this season is associated with people and parties, it can be for many of us one of the loneliest times of year. And we need to hear afresh, uniquely, this profound and powerful truth from this very sad and sorrowful story that there is a God who sees us. And so the the one thing I want us to kind of hear and to take away together in our time as we turn to this old ancient story is this, that Christmas reveals to us the God who sees us. Christmas reveals to us the God who sees us. And again, it may sound like an odd text, to be read, you know, the story of Abram and Sarai and Hagar. It doesn't seem to be connected to Advent, but what I want us to see is that this very sad and sorrowful story is also a very powerful and profound story that finds its culmination in the Christmas story. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open to Genesis 16, and I want us to walk through the story, and I want to highlight some of the characters as we walk through it. And the first character is the waiting wife, the waiting wife, Sarai. So, so just to kind of set the context, so, so God has promised to Abram and Sarai that they will be pregnant, that they will have a child in old age, and from this child would be the blessing to all nations. Now, this promise was given to Abram, not to Sarai directly, and it was given a decade ago at this time. And so Sarai is waiting and waiting 
Uh, they're, they're getting older and older, and no child has arrived, and the biological clock is ticking, and so Sarai in this moment is feeling rather desperate. So she suggests this idea to her husband to take their maidservant and for her to be pregnant by Abram to have a child. They take matters into their own hands. Now, before Captain Obvious chimes in and says, that doesn't seem like a good idea, uh, it's not a good idea, uh, we have to, I want us to feel what Sarai is feeling. I mean, just think about this. So, so not only, not only did, did God not speak to her directly, but it has been a decade since that promise that she would have a child. And so even though God has not given up on her, it feels as though he has. And so that's what leads Sarai to give up on him. And so she takes matters into her own hands. She feels in this moment very unseen by God. And in her frustrated and hopeless state, Sarai suggests the idea of giving Hagar to Abram to bear a child for her. Now, as crazy as this idea kind of sounds, this was actually very customary practice in the ancient Near East. It doesn't mean that it's, it's like uh, approved and condoned by God, but, but very much so in this time, your livelihood, your prosperity, your ability to progress in life was deeply tied up with your ability to have children. And so, so in this time, I mean, childlessness was the equivalent of homelessness. And so this is, this is the desperation that Abram and Sarai are feeling which is why they take matters into their own hands. Now, again, it doesn't mean that polygamy is a good idea. It doesn't mean that God condones it. In fact, every time in Scripture when people go outside of God's design, particularly as it relates to polygamy, it always goes poorly, okay? So don't do it. <laughs> but but the, point being, the point being is that this is what, what God is showing is that when we take matters into our own hands, things fall apart. So Hagar conceives, and immediately there's tension, between her and Hagar. Hagar looks upon Sarai with contempt, as Scripture says. And, and this produces this kind of tension, this kind of jealousy, this competition, and it leads Sarai to kicking Hagar out, removing her from the family, leaving her to fend for herself. And Abram is not, not very much helpful, not, not much help in this time. And we turn to the second part of the story, the abused woman the abused woman. So now we turn our attention to Hagar, which is really God is turning our attention to Hagar in this story. And so Hagar has been taken from her home. She has been forced to bear a child, abused by her masters, and she's eventually cast out. And in verse 6 of chapter 16, we read these words, Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. And then Sarai mistreated her, Hagar, so much that she ran away from her. Now, that word mistreated, it's not a really, uh, it's not, it doesn't do justice to the Hebrew word. It literally means to oppress or to abuse. And in fact, it's the exact same word used to describe later in Exodus how the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites and mistreated them. And so you see this kind of strange, sad irony of, of Abram, the, the father of the nation of Israel, treating a slave in a way that Egypt will treat his descendants. Again, what, what this is pointing out is that the Bible is not filled with people whose moral lives are meant to be emulated. They are to show that despite broken people, God accomplishes his, his purposes. And so, so Hagar is in this situation. She's in a dire situation. And in her mind, it is better to fend for herself, to leave Abram and Sarai, and to return back to Egypt, to brave this journey back home as a lonely, wounded pregnant, poor, single mother. That is the situation she's in, and she chooses to go by herself, feeling utterly alone. 
And it is in this moment of vulnerability, of weakness, of loneliness and isolation where the seeing God finds her. And that's who we turn to next is the seeing God. In many ways, Hagar is the focal point of this story because God, who is the center point of all of Scripture, is putting our attention upon her. In Holy Scripture, God is wanting us to see Hagar as he sees her. And in verse 7 and 8, we read these words, The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, there, there are, let me just reference the, the angel of the Lord. There's a lot of theories about who the angel of the Lord is that we don't, time won't permit us to get into all of that. But, but what we do know throughout scripture is that whenever the angel of the Lord speaks, he is speaking as if he is God. He is a messenger. In fact, the word angel literally means messenger. And so when the angel of the Lord is speaking, he is speaking as a representative of God most high. And so the angel of the Lord speaks as a messenger, and so what we see is that it's fair to say that God is speaking to Hagar. In fact, and Hagar recognizes that as she responds to him. And what I love about this interaction is that God doesn't simply stumble across Hagar. It's not as though he's kind of looking for his phone in the desert and like, oh, there's Hagar. Like, he is looking for her specifically. He comes to her and calls her by name and knows that she is the slave of Sarai. In other words, God knows exactly who she is and the circumstances of her life that have brought her to this very vulnerable position. And in fact, this this is really fascinating. This is actually the only known instance in all of ancient Near Eastern literature, not, not just the Bible, but all ancient Near Eastern literature, where a deity speaks to a woman by name. The only time in recorded ancient literature where a deity speaks to a woman by name, and it's not a princess, it's not a queen, it's not a matriarch of of any kind, it is a poor, lonely, abused, rejected single mother, which says something about the character and the heart of our God who sees uniquely not just those of influence and power, but who condescends and sees us in our broken, humble state. And God comes to her to let her know that she is seen, that she is heard, that she is known, and that she is loved by him. And man, I'll, I'll tell you, as, as I was writing this and reflecting on this, as, as a child, as a, as a person who was raised by a single mother, that this, this truth resonates with me deeply. And I'm sure it resonates with you as well. That this idea that God sees us in our profound brokenness, loneliness, and isolation And so how does Hagar respond to the God who sees her in her loneliness, in her rejection, in her abuse? Verse 13, we read these words. And so she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy. For she said, in this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. In this moment, this woman whom throughout all ancient or Eastern literature, the only time God speaks to a woman by name, she responds, she does, she responds in favor by giving God a name. And in fact, this is the only time recorded in Scripture that we see any human giving God a name specifically. God is referred to as many things, but it's the only time in Scripture where a human gives God a name, confers a name upon him. 
And what we see is that God gladly receives this title. The God of highest heaven gladly receives this name, records it for us in Scripture to show us something beautiful and profound about the truth of what happens when we are seen in our brokenness. It produces an ability to see others and to bring about beauty and truth. And so in this story, from, from the name Ishmael, which, which uh, we see that, that God ascribes to Hagar's child, it means that God hears, to the name that Hagar gives to God, namely the God who sees, what we see is that God is deeply attentive to, aware of, and present with his people, particularly in times of sorrow, pain, and grief. And so what I believe God, and many, there's many things he's saying in this story, but what God is tenderly telling us today through this timeless story is that I see you, my child. I see you. I know you. I know where you have come from. I know what has brought you to this moment. I know why you weep. I know why you stay up at night. I know why you feel anxious and in despair. I know why you question, why you doubt. I know why you curse and why you cry. I have seen you. I know you. I see you, my child. And, and I, want us to, I just want us to sit in that truth for a second, particularly because I think so many of us have sat too long in the lie that God doesn't see us, that God doesn't care about us, that God doesn't know our circumstances or hear our cries or even add his tears to ours as we weep. I believe that God, in this story, is telling us through Hagar, he's using this story as a megaphone, if you will, shouting into your heart and into mine that you are not alone, that you are not overlooked, that you are not unseen by the God, El Roy, who sees us. This is a profound truth that I believe God is trying to declare to us through this story. And, and, and here's one thing I believe about this, is that when we are seen, it, it transforms our sufferings, our wounds, and our pains. It, does, it doesn't take them away, and it doesn't prevent any kind of future suffering from taking place. But there is something that happens when we are seen in our pain that serves as a profound um, blow to our sufferings. It minimizes, it weakens, it dilutes in some ways the pain we feel. Because sometimes, we all know this, that the most comforting thing that we can experience in times of pain is someone seeing us in our pain. Is someone recognizing and validating what we are feeling and experiencing. What we need in these moments is for us to feel felt by someone else. We all know this. I mean, whether it's a conflict with a significant other, a spouse, a coworker, we, we know those moments where we're frustrated and hurt and angry, and we just need someone to recognize and to see that, to validate it. We need to be seen. In fact, there's a, there's a story from my life as I think I was trying to reflect on kind of moments where this has happened. Some of you know, so all four of our kids, my wife Megan and I, uh, all four of our kids had hip dysplasia when they were born. Um, hip dysplasia, they're, they're fine now, they're fine now, uh, but, but all four kids had hip dysplasia, um, and so they, they've grown out of this, uh, they're, they're totally fine now, they're, they're still capels, so that's a problem, but uh, there's no cure for that. But, but at birth, we discovered that the, the ball of their femurs, they didn't fully fit in their hip sockets. 
And so this is something that, I mean, it is somewhat common, but it, it's, and it's easily treated if caught early. But all three, these are our three girls, and Eddie had it too, but all three girls, had, all, all four kids, had to wear these vile harnesses for several months, constantly. We bathed them, fed them, changed them, everything. It was just this constant, like, it looks like you're like, sitting in a Miata the whole time. Like, you can't extend your legs. It is so uncomfortable. Sorry to all Miata owners out there. But, but, but these harnesses were so uncomfortable, they were just painful, and, and it did. It, like, we couldn't like, hold our kids tenderly and close. It was a painful experience and for us emotionally, but also for our kids. And so uh, several years after our kids got out of their harnesses, I remember being at Target, and I saw this young mom with a little carrier and a precious child inside it wearing a very familiar, vile harness. And I saw, and I just went right up to this woman who I've never met, and I was just like, all of my kids had hip dysplasia. And she was like, oh my gosh, and we just started, we had this moment, I didn't even learn her name, you know, we're just exchanging conversations, and she begins to, to cry as I'm describing to her what we went through, and I'm just like, it's going to be okay, it's challenging and difficult, but I know what you're going through. And so in this moment, all I needed to do was for her to see me seeing her in her pain. She, she was feeling felt by me in this moment. We had this powerful, profound moment, and then we just went off and never saw each other again. And I, I share this story to show that in our times of sorrow and pain, our, our, our wounds are weakened when we are seen and felt by another. And church, if this is true for two strangers in Target, how much truer is it when the God of highest heavens sees us in our pain, in our wounds? But, but even as I say that, my, my guess is that, that now, in this very precise moment, as we are in church, it's Christmas season, it's a room filled with people, we're, we're, we're talking about God seeing us, we still, some of us may still feel very alone, unseen and overlooked. In fact, for some of us, church may be where you feel your loneliness very acutely. Perhaps you feel overlooked because like, like Sarai, you're waiting for God to bless you with a child or with a family, and it hasn't happened you feel as though no one understands and no one sees you for who you are. Perhaps you feel unseen because like Hagar, you're in a job that seems demeaning or dehumanizing. It feels like a dead end of some kind. You feel unseen, undervalued, underappreciated in the work you do. Or perhaps you're, you're unemployed or underemployed and, and, and the fear that that brings, the anxiety that brings is crippling. Perhaps you feel invisible because you struggle with same-sex attraction. Or, or gender dysphoria, and you're, you're not quite sure if you even fit in the church. As you try to follow Jesus and struggle with these things, where on earth do I fit in with these dynamics of my life? I mean, we keep going. The list is endless of, of ways in which we feel invisible. It could be that you're a minority in a majority culture. It could be that, that English is your second language. It could be that you suffer from mental illness. It could be that you're abused, divorced, widowed, Maybe you have a criminal background or whatever it is. There are so many things that can make us feel utterly alone and invisible. And if you find yourself feeling unseen, forgotten, overlooked, what I want you to know is that the God who sees, sees you in your suffering. If there is one thing that I know about who God is, is that it, he is uniquely acquainted with those that suffer and with those that weep. He is uniquely acquainted and identifies with those who suffer and those who weep. In fact, the Psalms, 
The Psalms are one of the most powerful places where we see this unique heart of God played out for us. In Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When we feel as though God is absent in times of sorrow, that is actually precisely when he is nearest to us. Psalm 56, 8, a a psalm that has been meant so much to me, you have kept count of my tossings or my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not also in your book? God knows every tear that you have shed and why you have shed them. And he adds his tears to yours. Psalm 31, verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Why? Because you have seen my affliction. Not because you have delivered me from my affliction, although that is true and God does that. But what the psalmist declares here, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. You get me is what my paraphrase of that passage would be. The thing that enables us to rejoice in the steadfast love of God is not that God guards us from suffering or prevents it from coming, but that he sees us in our suffering and knows the distress of our soul. Friends, our our desire, our need to be seen is so profound and so powerful. Some of you might even just be hearing this word seen as like, that's so hollow and weak. Is, Is this really all that God has to offer us? But our desire and our need to be seen goes so deep. In fact, if, uh, if you attended uh, earlier this fall the event that we hosted with Dr. Kurt Thompson, uh, Dr. Thompson came and shared with us the, the foundational desires that we have as humans to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. There's a profound truth. As a board-certified psychiatrist and as a faithful follower of Jesus, Dr. Thompson shows the, the deep connection that we have between modern studies in neuroscience and God's design of our hearts that long after him. In fact, in his book, The Soul of Desire, Dr. Thompson says this, the development of secure attachment is enabled by our experience of feeling seen, soothed, safe, and secure. We must first literally be seen across the entire breadth of our emotional condition. And he goes on to say, our need to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure never stops. It never stops. The only question is who is providing those experiences for us. And what Dr. Thompson goes on to say, and what we see in this name of God, the God who sees, and what we see in the story of Christmas is the one who sees us, is the one who makes us feel seen profoundly because the story of Christmas reveals to us the God who sees us. And I want to make this connection for us. The the story of Hagar, seeing God, seeing her, is pointing forward to the story of God entering our world to see us. It is a foreshadow of what comes to be truly in the person of Jesus. Because this story of an angel coming to speak to a very lonely, vulnerable young girl with good news in the midst of turbulent times is pointing forward to another story where an angel would come to a very vulnerable and lonely young girl with good news during turbulent times. Just as Hagar responded to the seeing God with the words, truly I have seen him who looks after me, Mary, the mother of Jesus, responds to that same God with these words in Luke 1, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
He has seen me in my weak, broken, desperate state, and my soul magnifies the Lord. Friends, there is no God who has the eyes that our God has, because there is no other God who has entered into humanity by becoming human in order to see us and to save us. In the most powerful and loving way, God entered into our lives, not simply to see us in our pain, but to share with us in our pain. Amen? That's the power of what Christmas is communicating to us, that the God who sees, the God who saw Hagar in the wilderness is the same God who has entered in to see us with his own eyes, being fully God and fully human. Because the story of the seeing God in Genesis 16 is pointing us to the story of the Savior's birth. The God who saw Hagar in the desert is the same God who saw Mary in her humble estate and is the same God who sees you and who sees me in our suffering, our loneliness, our sin, and regret. Christmas reveals to us the God who sees us. But the question for you, for me, for all of us is have we been found by the God of seeing? Have we been found by this God who sees us and who calls us by name? Because this God, El Roy, this God who sees us, who looks after us, he is looking for you. He knows you. He knows you by name. He knows what you have gone through, and he calls you by name. He knows your circumstances. As Dr. Kurt Thompson says, we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us. That, that, that is true on a neurological perspective, that's true on a psychological perspective, it is true on a theological perspective. We are all born into this world looking for someone, looking for us, and the powerful story of Christmas is that Jesus, who is the God who sees, has come into our world looking for us. And he has come in and declares, he, he comes to this world looking around, looking for him. He looks for us, looking for him, and he declares to us boldly and profoundly, there you are. I have been waiting for you, and I'm here, and I see you, and I want you, and I love you. I've come to redeem you. I've come to declare to you who you actually are. I see you better than you see yourself. But what we see also in this grand and beautiful story is that while Jesus has entered into this world looking for us and and hoping that we would see him, he finds us turning our gaze away from him. He finds us distracted and looking past him as if he isn't the one we're looking for. Looking past him as if he isn't the one looking for us. And he watches us as we tune out his voice, as we blur out his face, and as we do so desperately but disappointingly looking for someone else or something else. That no, it can't be this God who sees me, that this, this can't be the one I'm looking for. And it makes him cry all the louder and all the more tenderly over us. I am here. I have come. I see you. I love you. I want you. I am the one that you are looking for. Stop. Stop searching. Stop wandering. Stop turning. And open your eyes to see the God who sees you. Who has come to redeem you who has come to stand in your place, to become your sin and shame so that you don't have to bear it anymore. Church, in your pain, in your grief, 
In your sorrow, in your loneliness, would you see the God who sees you? See the God who has come for you. See the God who was born a child and yet a king. See the God who suffers with you and suffers for you. See the God who sees you in your pain, who entered this world so that we might be made whole and loved by him. May you see the God who sees us and who longs for us to see him. Would we be found by this God who sees us? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, even as we share this truth, this undeniable truth that you are the God who sees us, I'm also keenly aware of the fact that many of us still feel utterly alone, completely invisible, dismissed, overlooked. Lord, what I ask for in this time, in this season where we remember and celebrate your arrival, your entrance into this world to see us and to behold us beholding you, would you, by the power of your Spirit, awaken us to the reality that the God of highest heaven knows us, sees us, knows us by name, knows where we have come from, and so lovingly and tenderly declares over us, there you are. I've been looking for you, waiting for you. Lord Jesus, would you be found to be the God who sees us? Would you be found as the God who we are looking for? So Lord, would you break through barriers of doubt, of wounds, of hurt, of sin, and would you show us yourself as the God who has entered in to love us by showing us yourself and allowing us to see you. Lord, I pray that you would do this work in us and that we would feel the profound truth of the God who sees. May this be true of us in this time and moving forward, we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.